We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this episode we'll be talking the u.s men's national team new coach i suppose i should put a question mark there uh yates uh american summer transfers dortmund choking leeds whimpering tfc drama the world cup final stadium statues and so much more for first joining me as always my friend my colleague my guiding light david mossy a soccer savant and a fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire mossy how you doing on this uh we're recording this tuesday bright and early may 30th i hope everybody had a uh, uh a fun uh long weekend and uh, Memorial Day, and hope everybody uh, recognized what that day off actually uh, is there for. And we certainly uh, send all of our respects and thanks to all of those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for giving us the freedom to come on a show like this and babble on about soccer and do all the things that we sometimes unfortunately take for granted in our uh, great country. Mossy, how you doing, my man? I am doing well. You know, you are fortunate to be sitting in that chair today. Why is that? Because I had proposed Cat Donnelly replacing you, and we were going to spend the entire show breaking down the succession finale, <laughs> but Cat was unavailable because she is celebrating her bachelorette party the past few days, so she was in no condition to come in today and uh, record yeah, a podcast. Yeah, she is in uh, L.A., but uh, evidently the, uh, the, the partying and the celebratory um, uh, escapades caught up with her so we we wish her well hydration very very important during uh and after certainly uh so she'll be back but no nobody's they can rip this from my cold dead redheaded american hands my friend um you watch anything or uh, see anything well i think Besides i just this. gave it away <laughs> uh what did your wife think of it uh she has saved it for today so uh on wednesday i'll let you know um, how, how how she thought of it. Now, this is not the penultimate. This is the ultimate. This is the last one. Done. Correct. Which also means that starting uh, this week, I can now watch it and binge it from start to finish, if I so desire. Uh, last week, I watched the final ever episode of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I thought was terrific. And then this past weekend, the final ever episode of Succession, which I found absolutely riveting. And then... Uh, we also have potentially the final episode of Ted Lasso this week. They've been a bit coy on that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, final episodes uh, of, you know, um, massive and epic types of shows are often under the microscope. And some some have lived up and some haven't over the uh, course of the years. Uh, I know you're a big um, Seinfeld fan. A lot of varying uh 
opinions when it comes to the final of Seinfeld. But this one, you think, lived up to the show ultimately. Absolutely. That's, they that's stuck the landing. Do. They did. They stuck the landing. One of your most controversial takes is you did not mind the Game of Thrones finale that much. I did not. I did not uh, mind it at all. I didn't think that it, well, jumping the shark usually happens, you know, a season before or something like that. But the, it's hard to write a final episode for something that has been so important to so many people and to live up to all of those. So I'm, you know, congratulations to the writers and obviously the actors for doing that, at least in your mind. And, and you think that's most most people would agree after watching last night. All right. Well, I will. I will be the ultimate judge, as we know, when it comes to this. Let's see. What did I? Uh, what did I watch? Um, my my mother. For those that don't know, she's a poet, and she uh, she texted me the other day and said, "You got to watch this documentary on um, on Yates, uh, W. B. Yates, uh, the poet." And it's actually free on YouTube if you want to watch. It's called uh, a fan. Uh, it's called a fanatic heart, and Bob Geldof actually. Uh, put this thing together. He is the host and you know, wrote it and did all sorts of stuff in, uh, in it. It's really interesting to go and hear. Now, while my mother is a poet, I do not claim to be an expert when it comes to poetry. I can, you know, sometimes art hits people in different ways. Some people are affected incredibly. Like, for example, me, I can hear a song and it can go right to my core and it can bring up images it can evoke uh emotions and all these different things i can i can laugh i can cry i can sing i can yell i can do all those different things relative to uh, relative to music now the same effect can happen when people see a, a beautiful painting uh or in this case poetry I, i'm not going to say that, that that poetry affects me like that i often i think need the music with with the words and if one of those is missing it, it's it's hard for me as opposed to my mom and so many others, but I can certainly appreciate and I can see greatness. Uh, and this man was great, but he also has an incredible story. And so um, I, I'm recommending this because even if you don't like poetry, um, I think you can appreciate when you see all of these incredible stars and there's incredible, you know, Bono and Sting and the list goes on and on actors and entertainers and writers who are either talking about this incredible life that he lived or actually talking about the poetry that he wrote and how important it was and the the things that he did. And also, in, even in the moment, seeing them affected by the words that this man wrote. So uh, I recommend uh, I recommend that. Um, Ray, light this candle? Let's do it. Because uh, I think we should light it right off the bat. And, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to bury the lead because we come on air this morning with some news from U.S. soccer. And <laughs> I got to make sure I get this right, because literally it just came into our uh, our mailboxes here as to what is happening. Um, U.S. soccer's sporting director, Matt Crocker, who we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, the newest um, appointee for U.S. soccer, has elevated B.J. Callahan to head coach of the U.S. men's national team as Anthony Hudson, who has been serving in an interim capacity for basically the last half of a year since the World Cup, is now departing. We don't know exactly where he is going. I, by the time you're listening to this, that information will be public. But you know, we're assuming that he's going to a opportunity, a professional opportunity at a club uh, somewhere. I don't think that it's domestic, so uh, the world 
to a certain extent, is out there and his oyster. Uh, we wish him well, thank him. But from a practical perspective, this means that B.J. Callahan is now the new men's national team head coach and will be for this foreseeable future uh, and at least through the uh, the Gold Cup until Mr. Crocker makes a, his decision as to who is going to be the coach. Now, you may be out there saying, that's great, but who the hell is B.J. Callahan? As a lot of people, including a couple of us here at the, uh, <laughs> at the State of the Union podcast, um, are saying too. Now, I'm, I'm giggling because this is, this is insane. Okay, not not that B.J. Callahan is is now the head coach. It's just what is going on? Why can we not get a head coach of the U.S. men's national team? Why is this taking so long? And now we have our second interim uh, head coach. Now, for those that know B.J. Callahan, um, he certainly has a resume in that he has coached at all levels, uh, be a youth um, he uh, coached in the professional levels with uh, coming out of the uh, Philadelphia Union organization, college, um, youth national team, type of, uh, that type of stuff. Has his pro license. Um, he is uh, a native of New Jersey and 41 years old. And he, let's see, I want to make sure that I, uh, that I get this right. He was uh, with the Federation and obviously with Anthony Hudson now. And he was the, stri- the strategy analyst before being promoted to the assistant coach on the U.S. Uh, national team. I don't know what the strategy analyst is, but obviously he was part of that ecosystem and part of uh, the national team program. I-, I wish him well. He will now be leading this U.S. national team three years out from arguably the most important time uh, and moment in American soccer history through the Gold Cup, um, a tournament that the U.S. is going to play and try to defend their title. And he will be doing it again in an interim capacity. And so we're we, while there has been change, nothing really has changed here. Um, I, I, I don't know what to think about this other than there is an element of frustration, Mossy, as to why we find ourselves here. Now, keep in mind, we lost six months because the World Cup happened in December. Nothing anybody could do about that. It was just the reality of the situation. But it meant that you were six months closer to the next World Cup. Now we've lost yet another six months, okay? And that is of our own doing because we didn't hire anybody. And that might have been pressure and that might have been uh, absolutely uh, a fair thing to do and you want to make sure you get the right person. But now We're three years away from the World Cup, and we're going to go through most of the summer here now with an an interim coach. Now, they were going to do that with Anthony Hudson. They had already said that. But Anthony Hudson probably read the writing on the wall and said, if there comes an opportunity and a jumping off point, I need to take it because I'm not going to be the head coach of the national team going forward as much as this has bolstered his resume. And he's done a very good job and should be applauded for that. He said, I need to get a job and I need to get a a gig that is going to last. So congratulations to him. Thank you to him. And I wish him well wherever it is that he is uh, he is going to. And like I said, if you're listening to this now, the, the news is probably out where that ultimately is. But we came on air uh, and we have to go with this and we just don't have that information yet. Yeah, it makes a transition period feel even more transitioning. My question would be if they do hire a coach at some point in the next couple of weeks. Previously, the plan was that even if they did that, 
the coach would only take over in September and Hudson would still coach the Gold Cup. Now, would they change that and have the new coach step in right away and coach the Gold Cup? Maybe. I mean, maybe this changes the calculation. And, you know, if you're, well, like we said about Anthony Hudson, you, you, this, is a, this was a gift to him to pad his resume and to put his best foot forward. And I think he did. I think he used that to his advantage. And this is another gift to, to BJ Callahan to, hey, use this to your, to your advantage. And if and when it's over, and it will be over, then make sure that you have put your best foot forward and you look better coming out of it. I read an article about B.J. Callahan that described him as a set-piece guru. So <laughs> Good. Uh, Mexico, Nations League semifinal, that first corner, I expect a goal out of it. Well, we, we did talk before about the, uh, the set-piece specialist and coach that the U.S. men's national team had. That, wasn't, that wasn't necessarily him, but now you're, the, now you're the man. Now you're in charge of this team at a really crucial point and a, a transition, like you said, a transitionary type of, type of moment. And you know, go for it and use it to your advantage. But I do think that this is not a good look for the US, United States Soccer Federation. Now, you can have moments of transition, but keep in mind, uh, Ernie Stewart is now gone. Brian McBride is now gone. Greg Berhalter is now gone. Anthony Hudson is now gone. And the guy who was the strategy analyst is now the head coach. So next person up. I guess the last guy out of Chicago turned out the lights. And, you know, I know the, the, the folks in Chicago are probably listening to this and saying, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. And there, there might be valid reasons for these decisions. And shit happens. I, I get it. And you have to bob and weave uh, and adjust. But did all of this have to happen? And it's a longer conversation. And as we, as we, as we go on through the summer and maybe m things get clearer, we will continue to have this conversation. But as it stands right now, BJ it is. So good luck, BJ. Uh, uh, and I, I, I look forward to seeing you and your team and you leading this team uh, through the summer. There will be more on this. And obviously later on in the week in our next, uh, next pod, we will dive into it, I think, uh, I think more. But as it stands right now, Congratulations, B.J. Callahan, the newest head coach of the U.S. men's national team. Now, a lot of the players B.J. Callahan will be coaching this summer have important decisions to make regarding their club futures. Are you ready to have the long-awaited American transfer talk segment that we've been teasing for weeks on this podcast? I am ready to have it. Um, I don't want to poo-poo it, and I don't want to um, bring people down when it comes to this, but I will tell you ahead of time that my overall feeling is that the movement and the, not the excitement, but the movement that I think many of us are anticipating, I don't think is going to be as great as we think it is going to be. I will say that ahead of time. All right, where should we start? Well, let's begin with the biggest name of all, Christian Pulisic. His Chelsea career likely came to an unceremonious end this past weekend. He came on as a late sub against Newcastle and was booed. Um, when it emerged that Mauricio Pochettino was going to be Chelsea's next coach, for a day or two there, there were some stories suggesting that Pochettino was a fan of Pulisic and might try to keep him. But those stories seem to have gone away and everybody's back on the page of thinking he's definitely going to leave. There seems to be a lot of interest emanating from Italy. I've heard AC Milan. I've heard Napoli. Remember Aurelio Di Laurenti said recently he wants an American on the team next season. And we've also heard Juventus now as possibilities. The one team in the Premier League He's been linked with his Newcastle. So how do you see it? All right. So look, 
Christian Pulisic, first off, there's there's just the pure competitive side. And, you know, we sometimes forget about all of the uh, things off the field that are incredibly important. We've talked often about how we as American soccer fans, and this is this is through the lens of red, white, and blue, uh, and the U.S. men's national team, that we want him playing consistently. You know, this is arguably, not arguably, he is one of the great players the U.S. has produced. Potentially, over time, he could emerge as the greatest player that we have ever produced, but he has yet to fully and consistently live up to his incredible talents. And part of it is timing, and part of it is injuries, and part of it is situational where he is, but that's also, that's on him, ultimately. He came over for, what, $80 million from, uh, from Dortmund. Incredible high fee. Um, and has not lived up to that fee. Keep in mind that, I don't know what he's making exactly, but let's say, let's say he's making $15 million a year, something ridiculous, whatever, whatever it is ultimately that he is, uh, he is making. Who is going to pay him that? All right. So it's easy to say, yeah, he's going to go to Juventus. Or, yeah, he's going to go here. Keep in mind, he has one year left on his contract. Okay. The, um, the paradise moment in the modern day is to have a player that is sought after by teams around the world and certainly teams in, in, uh, in Europe, given the money, that is talented, that is young, and that is out of contract. So there's no transfer fee. A year from now, that would be Christian Pulisic. So first you have to just say, it's all fine and well that you want Christian Pulisic to go someplace else, or even if Christian Pulisic wants to go someplace else. But why is he going to go someplace else and make less money? Who is going to pay him what Chelsea is paying him? And if, it, if Christian looks at this situation from a business perspective, why would you go anywhere else? Now, there's the competitive side and playing consistently, and that absolutely has value and draw. But in this situation right now, you're still playing for one of the great clubs in the world. They're not going to have to worry tremendously about the, uh, you know, the fighting on multiple fronts. Um, and you still get to make all of the money that you're making. And a year from now, you are a free agent. And you think that you're valuable now? A year from now, when there's no transfer free, no transfer fee, and you can go anywhere in the world, and you're young enough right now, so it's, this is not you know a, a, an aging type of player, that is incredibly attractive. Now, I'm not saying that somebody might not come in and make them an offer they can't refuse, and maybe pay him at or around what he's making right now. But there's not a lot of teams out there that are going to do this, and it's not as if his image has been bolstered given what has happened at Chelsea. If he does leave, I still maintain AC Milan and Newcastle are the two best options. Uh, keep in mind, both those teams will be in the Champions League uh, next season. Newcastle finished fourth in the Premier League. AC Milan, with their win over Juventus this past weekend, secured a top four finish in Italy. I'm enamored of both Eddie Howe and Stefano Pioli. I think they're very good at developing players. You see what Pioli's done to Rafael Leon. You see what Eddie Howe has done with the likes of Joelinto and Miguel Amiron. So I think those would be two good destinations. The overarching question here, and when we had Taylor Tolman on the podcast, he raised this issue, is whether Pulisic wants to go to another big club to prove that he was mistreated at Chelsea, but he can succeed at that level, or if he's willing to take a step down to go somewhere where he's guaranteed to play regularly. So that's kind of what he has to wrestle with. Although you're introducing a third option, which is to stick it out at Chelsea for another season and then leave as a free agent the following summer. 
in, in a sense, his value has boxed him into Chelsea because, again, if you're Christian Pulisic, okay, are you going to go someplace and make half of what you're making at Chelsea? Just be, just for the fire and the and the romance of it? I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's made enough money where he doesn't care anymore about money. But even at, at I'm going to be 53 here in a week. At the ripe old age of 53, I've seen some things. And even people that make a lot of money, <laughs> they still want to make not not just as much, but oftentimes they want to make more money. So um, so I think that that is I think that's an obstacle. But to your point, if he were to go, ah, it would be beautiful. No castle would be beautiful. Uh, AC Milan, I like the AC Milan, but I think I'm more enamored of it just just to see what he looks like in Italian soccer. You know, in in Serie A, I think that I think that's the way that he plays. I'm not sure that the way that he plays is cut out for the way that England plays. And I know it's generalizing a little bit about how England plays. Um, and it's not a matter of toughness. It's actually a, a way that he thinks about the game, I think at times is in an advanced way. And, and at times it, it hurts him because of a need on a much more consistent basis in the EPL to be much more rudimentary. All right, we have nine more players to get through. So I don't right. know if we can spend Listen. this much time on every one. But right. next up is Weston McKinney. Yeah. Uh, it was a midseason loan from Juventus to Leeds. It proved to be a disaster. There's no chance of him staying at Leeds permanently. So now he's going to go back to Juventus. The question is whether he will stay there or get sold this summer. Uh, it sounds like he'll likely get sold this summer. The one Possibility that's emerged is Brighton. They are set to lose Alexis McAllister and Moises Caicedo this summer, so people think there might be a fit there with all those midfield minutes available. Yeah, I love Brighton uh, because of the way that they play, and I I actually want to see, and I think I said this before, I want to see Weston at a a more advanced level of play, and and I don't want to see him in a situation where everything is dictated by the fear of going down and just staying up, because I think that that unfortunately makes teams and players play in a different way. So yeah, that, I think that that would be good. But I will say this, Weston time and time again has proven at Juventus that he is of value and he has come into situations and not not forever, and, and he certainly has his faults, but it wouldn't surprise me in, in the least if he comes back after his time at Leeds and finds a way back into the Juventus um Juventus world in terms of getting uh, getting playing time, and that certainly wouldn't be a problem. So he doesn't he doesn't have to move, but if he were to move someplace like Brighton, I would absolutely uh, applaud that. He has not done uh, his you know his um, CV uh, justice um, or helped it by his performance in England. It did not go well for Weston individually. In terms of the way that he played at Leeds, you know they're booing him, they're calling him fat, uh, they're they're getting him on the train as he goes home. So uh, the relationship with Leeds supporters and with Leeds in general, it did not end on a on a high note. And yet, interestingly, all the possibilities I've heard of are in England, yeah, rather than uh, Germany and Italy, two countries where he's played well in his career. I don't, I'm not sure what to make of that. Okay. Uh, Tyler Adams, uh, one of the few Leeds players who enhanced his reputation this season, uh, played very well. In fact, a lot of people think him being injured and missing the last part of the season was one of the main reasons they got relegated. 
the trouble with that is they might want to keep him to uh, help them move back up to the Premier League. But Tyler Adams is way too good to play in the championship. So I don't think he has any sort of relegation clause, but he needs to force his way out. Uh, he will definitely have suitors. The question on Tyler Adams would be, would he rather be a depth piece squad player at a big club or a starter at a, say, second tier club like a Brighton? Uh, because I've heard places like Manchester United, but then you're going to be the backup to Casemiro. So I don't know if that's necessarily the right move for his career. Well, if he doesn't have a release clause, then he needs to fire his agent. I mean, because it, news came out that Brendan Aronson has a release clause, right? Uh, and Tyler Adams, to your point, is you know one of the, the few bright lights. And I think if anybody is going to dismiss what Leeds is and just look at the individual player and the quality, um, I think it's going to focus on Tyler Adams. And so he is going to have suitors. But you know, keep in mind that the way that these contracts are written, if and when you are relegated, and anybody going to Leeds would have had part of that as part of the equation if they're doing their job, um, either you have a release clause and or you also have, if you do stay, that they're not paying you as much. And oftentimes, the amount of money that you're making is relative to whether you're in the Premier League or whether you're relegated and you go down. So if Tyler Adams can't find a move because of whatever it is, I mean, his price is too high or whatever, or Leeds say, hey, we, we want to keep you here, and he's making less money because of the uh, contractual situation to play in the championship, that sucks for him, and it sucks for him relative to the U.S. men's national team. So I hope that something happens. But keep in mind, everybody else outside is looking at the same things. And they're saying, all right, well, how much money are we really going to offer? And his value and his price is going to be dictated by whatever restrictions he may or may not have contractually. And again, we don't, we don't know. But I only say that because we're about to discuss Brendan Aronson, and that has come out that he does have a release, uh, a release clause, which makes him, in a certain sense even more valuable uh, than what he has been. And relative to Tyler Adams, if Tyler doesn't have one, that, you know, that, that's a problem. No, but I think there are lots of people that recognize that Tyler Adams would help them and that that type of player. Had Leeds had Tyler Adams down the stretch, what, what is he good for in terms of points? Maybe those two or three points that are the difference between promotion and relegation, or not or between relegation, excuse me. Well, you mentioned Brendan Aronson. Ironically, he's the one American at Leeds that uh, people don't think is too good to play in the championship. And some people think it might have actually done him some good to drop down a level. And yet he seems absolutely intent on leaving. He had his agent insert a relegation release clause, which means there's some sort of relatively low buyout number where another club comes in and pays it. Uh, he's free to go. And he seems intent on going. Uh, did not have a very good season. Started off well, but then really faded. I wonder what the market is for Brendan Aronson right now. He's always seemed to me like a Bundesliga player. His brother is at Eintracht Frankfurt right now, so perhaps he could even go there or a club like that. Yeah, and that traditional, I guess it's now it's traditional type of pathway of you know one of the smaller countries, your Austrias or whatever, then to the Bundesliga and then to the EPL. Obviously, he skipped that Bundesliga phase. And so, yeah, I guess that would that would make sense. But I think... Of anybody, to be quite honest with you, Brendan Aronson is the in the best position. Now, is he looked at after this season at Leeds as irreplaceable and incredibly highly sought after? Not necessarily. 
But because he has this release clause, it, it gives him many more options than, like we said, if it's a, a Tyler Adams or somebody else out there. And I, I don't think that if the option is even to go, you know, right back into a, uh, a, you know, a kettle, a hot kettle of a potential relegation team, I think for him, he will see playing in the, in the Premier League is better than dropping down with leads to uh, the championship. And we should mention, past couple of days, Jesse Marsh has been linked with Monaco. Yes. If he that. were to get that job, then suddenly that becomes an option for all these guys, uh, get the band back together kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and they could, I mean, they could definitely, Monaco certainly could afford and and Brendan Aronson would be available if that's something that uh, that he wants to do. I mean, I guess the lesson is get a release clause, <laughs> right? If you're if you're looking at a team that is potentially going to be facing uh, facing relegation. Um yeah, but I, but I think Brendan Aronson for sure is going to move. I'm not so sh- I'm not so sure about Tyler Adams, um, Weston McKinney, or Christian Pulisic. Uh, next up, one of the most interesting names on this list, Gio Reyna. Now, in our second segment today, we're going to recap the Bundesliga title race. We don't want to step on that completely, but we'll just say another strong performance for Gio off the bench this past weekend. He's had a strange season; hasn't played a whole lot. I think it was kind of a lost year in terms of his overall development as a player, but he did show this penchant as a super sub for coming on, getting goals, assists. So now people are wondering, is this a situation, I don't think Edin Terzic is going anywhere as a Dortmund head coach, where Gio needs to extricate himself and go somewhere else? Or no, they were just being cautious because of his fitness issues, but if he shows up in the preseason looking good, there's still a path towards him being a regular starter at Dortmund. And then if that's the case, Dortmund still is maybe the best club to use as, as a stepping stone to a bigger move. So how do you see Gio's situation? So first off, Gio Reyna, I don't need to tell Gio Reyna or anybody else listening that Gio Reyna is still playing for one of the big clubs in the world, right? <laughs> and a club that the majority of players out there would love to be involved with. Um, he has come through the drama and the ridiculousness that has happened off the field since the World Cup. And I think he's been in, incredibly I, for lack of a better word, professional in the way that he has approached it. In that he has done everything that's been asked for him uh, of him as a substitute, and he has done the very thing that you want from a substitute, to come in and to make a positive impact. Each and every time he comes on the field, to your point, he does something good, and he enhances what is going on, or he fundamentally changes the way the team plays and the way the team looks from an attacking perspective. That's all fine and well. Any player, including Gio, wants to start. There will be changes when it comes to Dortmund. It just remains to be seen. Do they see him as a consistent starter? And was this all just, to your point, moving him along at a pace relative to the fact that they were a very good team and they were a juggernaut to a certain extent? And, you know, his injury history and all of that. And now after a summer... He comes back and they actually look at him as a starter. If he has any, if he has any inclination that to be a starter, but sees that they don't see him as a starter, then that's a that's a problem, and he's got to you know talk to his agent and obviously look for a different situation. If it's just about if it's just about playing, but in a traditional way, he's done everything to put his foot forward as a starter next year in terms of being a substitute this year and doing what is asked of him. And he has started before, but if it's not happening, he's got to go someplace else. 
I would stay one more season. If next season looks like this season, then he's got to go. But he's still young. I, I still think, uh, as I said, there's a path there towards him emerging as a starter at Dortmund and then using that as a stepping stone to a bigger move. Okay. Next up, Folarin Balogun. He is an Arsenal player, spent this past season on loan with Hans, uh, scored 20 goals, first American to score 20 goals in a top five European league. He has reportedly made it clear to Arsenal that he wants to be a starter. Arsenal are not willing to offer him that. And Arsenal are looking to spend a lot of money this summer. So they view Balogun as somebody that could bring some money back. So a variety of clubs being mentioned, everybody from AC Milan to Inter Milan, Monaco, Marseille, Villarreal. Interestingly, no English clubs. The English have a weird relationship with English players who deign to go somewhere else and have success. Because they're not really goals, Moss. <laughs> <laughs> if they're scored over in, in France, they're not really goals, okay? But yeah, uh, I think AC Milan is interesting for him. Inter Milan, keep in mind, Inter is one of the few clubs in Europe that play with two up top. I don't know if he'd be going there as a replacement for Lautaro because they're going to sell him or to play alongside Lautaro this season, which has resulted in Inter reaching the Champions League final. It's been Lautaro alongside usually Dzeko, sometimes Lukaku. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Inter is interesting as well. Makes sense that a couple of bigger clubs in France would have been impressed with what he's doing this season with Hans. And then Villarreal, I, I don't know what to make of that. But Look, I, I know that you know, despite not ultimately lasting and winning the EPL title, Arsenal had a hell of a year. And this is an incredible team that is still very young and is only going to get better. But if you're Arsenal, you're going to be fault fighting on multiple fronts over there. Why wouldn't you bring him back, Mossy? Why wouldn't you have him at least part of the, for lack of a better word, arsenal going forward in the next season? I agree. I think he's clearly better than Enketia. And even while I think Gabriel Jesus with his all-around talents should be the starter, Balogun has displayed the potential to be a better goal scorer than Gabriel Jesus. And so he'd be a great option to have when Jesus goes on one of his goal scoring droughts. He's a guy you can throw on. So yeah, I think there's absolutely a role for him at Arsenal next season. I'm surprised that that that's not being discussed as more of a possibility. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe ultimately that uh, that happens. But he is, as we say, doing the most difficult thing to do and doing it at a rate that deserves attention, and that's why he's getting attention from from all of these uh, from all of these uh, teams. Hell, it's a record breaking rate in terms of the way that he is doing this, and that's why he is getting this. Uh, uh, this attention. So I think there will be a move up. I mean, that's the traditional type of course for any type of goal scorer out there that is doing it for a smaller team. You want those goals. It'll be interesting to see what, you know, because you were talking about Arsenal getting some money back, what his valuation is right now in terms of what they, they don't want him scoring goals for them. But what is this valuation when it comes to scoring goals out there on the market? Yeah, I spoke about his season in the past tense, but Liga is not actually over yet. There's one more round to go. The same true in Spain. Uh, Valencia still battling relegation, but they look to be in good shape to stay up. Yunus Musa, I think, other than Balogun, is the U.S. player with the highest upside. And so you're hearing teams like Chelsea and Liverpool mention. Again, it raises that question of, do you go to the biggest club possible to be a rotation player, or do you seek somewhere where you think you can be a regular starter. So he has that decision to make as well. But the sky's the limit for him. I think he's absolutely capable of playing for any club in the world. Despite his age, was there ever any time when you were watching Musa in the World Cup where if you didn't know that he was a teenager, that his play would have 
indicated that he was young and quote unquote inexperienced. I only say that because I think your answer is no. My answer is no. If you didn't know and you watched him, you were like, hell, that is a good player that I want on my team. And he plays that position. And, you know, you can go back to N'Golo Kante and these types of players where you want him in that midfield doing a lot of the dirty work, doing a lot of the work that goes unnoticed, but not unvalued. And I think that there are a lot of teams out there that if they were to sign Musa, immediately get better. His vision, his ability to get out of trouble, obviously his ability defensively to you know cut off passing lanes and do a lot of that dirty work that we talked about. Every team in the world wants something like that. And I don't think that his, his age or relative lack of experience is going to be a hindrance going forward. I think that there are plenty of teams that are going to line up and have seen him play, whether it's in the World Cup uh, or whether it's a club that are going to say, I want to sign this guy. But interesting, the overarching question for this generation of American players, we're saying this a lot for lots of different players, so we should take a step back and talk about it in more general terms, is you want Americans to aspire to play for the biggest clubs in the world, but you're also concerned about playing time. I don't know if there's a player on this list who walks into any club in the world and is a definite starter. So would you rather see some of these guys go to bigger clubs and try to earn a starting job or take the more conservative route, go somewhere where you're pretty guaranteed to be a regular starter. I mean, I guess it depends what your pecking order is. I guess you got to lay it out as to what is that next step and is that jump that players make too much? And, you know, we were talking earlier about Aronson. Was was bypassing, I guess, the more traditional next jump of going to the Bundesliga, was that smart, uh, ultimately? I, I don't... I mean, at some point, we have to have the confidence, and we have to have the talent that is able to come into a quote-unquote big club and not just be pushed aside and is able to challenge for a spot and is able to do it even though that background might not be every single step of the way was was, was planned out and it was always the same type of uh, same type of step if you know what I'm talking about uh, there's a couple more that we need to hit right yeah next up next up uh, Tim Weah uh, the issue for him this past season that Lil he played a lot but he played as a fullback so he needs to have a conversation with them and tell them that next season he wants to play at his regular position as a winger and if they're not willing to offer that then he might have to leave and Marseille has been mentioned as a possible destination I mean, look, you're playing, that's a good thing. But again, we're looking at this through the eyes of the U.S. men's national team. And when Tim Weah was on that right-hand side playing on the wing, he was great. And he was consistently dangerous. I think whether this is good or bad, he was the go-to when it came to people actually standing somebody up and taking somebody on -on one-on-one out wide. Um, And and Christian Pulisic did different things on the left-hand side, but as a just a blazer going up and down. That's 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 what you want. And so it's easier said than done going in and saying, this is what I want to do and this is where I want to play. The, the coach and the team is going to play you where they think is best for the team, not where they think is best for the U.S. men's national team. That's not the priority going forward. And so I think that's where the consternation comes from uh, from the outside is we want him to do what's good for for him relative to the national team. And... I don't know if there are going to be a lot of options right now. Um, 
but he has been linked to different teams, as as I'm sure he would, but it wouldn't surprise me if he just ultimately continues on uh, where he is. Uh, Serginho Dest, that loan from Barcelona to AC Milan was a disaster, and he doesn't seem to have any future at Barcelona, so he's going to go somewhere else this summer. Conflicting reports. Some people saying it's definitely going to be Union Berlin, but then others are saying, no, that's not true. It's not going to be Union Berlin. Um at first glance, I thought that'd be a good move for him. But then when I looked at the depth chart, they actually do have a couple of other wingbacks there. So I don't know. What, what do you think is a, but, the right okay, move? Okay, well, it's not. You may, it might not be Union Berlin. I think all roads for him do lead back to Germany. And I think that that'd be a comfortable landing spot for him after this <laughs> crazy adventure that he has taken through Barcelona and, uh, and Italy. But, th- you know, this is one where... I, I don't. I don't get the sense. Maybe you do. I don't get the sense that he's going to work his way back into the good graces and be a starter going forward when it comes to uh, to AC Milan. No, no, no chance. Like no, the, the sliding doors moment for him is when he was at Ajax. Barcelona and Bayern were both interested in him, and he chose Barcelona. And in retrospect, I think Bayern might have been the better player. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, look, you can't fault anybody for going to Barcelona. I would. I would think. And finally, uh, and then Ricardo Pepe. Uh, very good season individually with Groningen in the Eredivisie, and it sounds like he wants to stay in the Netherlands. Remember, he was on loan from Augsburg. He wants no part of going back there. And so PSV and Feyenoord uh, both interested. Uh, Feyenoord seems like being a bit more aggressive about it right now. Keep in mind, they have uh, Santi Jimenez, but he might be leaving, and then presumably Pepe would be the replacement for him. It would be interesting if Pepe went there and Jimenez didn't leave and all of a sudden they were battling for the starting job. That would be a fun little U.S.-Mexico uh, dynamic there. Uh, but yeah, I think Pepe's going to end up at one of those two clubs, PSV or Feyenoord. So, so here's the problem, and this is what I don't understand. It, it, screaming and yelling and that you're not going out to Augsburg obviously is a st- strategy, right? It's a strategic play by him and I suppose his representation. But Augsburg didn't use him last year and got along without him. And now he wants out. Well, that's all fine. But Augsburg is going to say, well, fine, but we're not going to give you away for free. And everybody else out there looking at it says, oh, maybe we can get somebody uh, for much less money now because, you know, this is a disgruntled type of player. And so they're going to lowball <laughs> from a price perspective. And I, I'm not sure that this is ultimately going to work out for Pepe here in terms of the way that he has played this. And maybe Augsburg just says, fine, listen, we'll loan you out again. We'll loan you out again to wherever it ultimately is. And that's that's fine for us. But unless somebody's going to come in with a ridiculous offer, and that, that certainly could happen, I, I don't know how this I don't know how this changes. And so PSV and, and Feinhard, I suppose they could do a loan type of deal situation here. But if this is, I want out and I want to be sold, fine. But what is the price now, given what, he has said, given the fact that Augsburg, they don't necessarily need him, but they're not just going to give him away. And they can get away with kind of taking their time and being patient and getting the most that they possibly can out of whatever transfer fee there is. This isn't a desperation type of move where they have to get rid of him. So I don't know. I mean, I think he's, I think ultimately he'll just go out on loan again someplace. Uh, That's the end of our list. Uh, We do want to tag this by mentioning that uh, we're not going to go through each of these guys, but also a big summer for U.S. goalkeepers. Matt Turner's got to decide whether he wants to spend another season as the backup to Ramsdale Arsenal or get loaned somewhere else. And then you had Zach Steffen, who spent this past season on loan with Middlesbrough from Manchester City. Doesn't have 
a future at Manchester City. So he's probably going to have to go back on loan again. And Ethan Horvath, who we're going to talk about in our next segment, had reason to celebrate this past weekend. He spent the season on loan at Luton Town from Nottingham Forest. So both those clubs in the Premier League next season. So he's going to have an interesting decision to make. Well, we'll see what BJ Callahan does <laughs> with the goalkeeping situation, because like you said, the the uh, the incumbent, I guess, the number one is a number two at Arsenal. The who who was number one, Zach Steffen, at least he went and was playing. And then you got old man Horvath uh, kicking ass. And now they're all going to I'm assuming the three of them at some point are going to be uh, show up at camp. And we'll see what BJ has in store when it comes to uh, to come to his goalkeeping. I don't I don't think that uh, that Matt Turner is going to go anywhere. I think he's making a lot of money. He's playing at one of the best clubs in the world that's on the upward trajectory after an incredible year. And yes, from a goalkeeping perspective, he's still the number two. But it's a pretty nice life I'm sure he's living. The tricky thing is Arsenal was in the Europa League this past season. They're now going to be in the Champions League. So the Europa League, those are games he could get. They're not going to rotate for the Champions League. So Ramsdale is going to presumably play those games as well. Maybe. So it's less opportunities in this season Maybe, than but- uh, next season. But he's in the Champions League. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, last last thing, this segment. Uh, we do want to mention the U.S. under-20 team. A fantastic group stage at the U-20 World Cup. Uh, Undefeated. Three wins in three games, zero goals conceded. We're taping this on a Tuesday morning. In a couple hours, they face New Zealand in the round of 16. We obviously can't say much about this because by the time you hear this podcast, that uh, game will have already occurred. So we'll just uh, recap it on our next pod, I guess. But you know, good luck to them, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that later. It's gone it's gone well so far, but now we get into the what do they call it? The business end, right? The nitty gritty here, and this is you know, win or go home. So please win. Don't go home yet. U.S. under twenties. All right, let's take a quick break, and we come back. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of stuff that went on over in uh, uh, over in Europe, and we'll check that out as we will uh, MLS too. Okay, welcome back. All right, let's get into it, Mossy. Uh, it was uh, a weekend of uh, last games and a weekend of drama. Let's start over in Bundesliga, shall we? Yeah, so we begin with the dramatic conclusion to the Bundesliga campaign. Dortmund had it in their hands and they blew it. I-, I mentioned a few weeks ago on this podcast that when we reflect on Bayern's Bundesliga dominance, yes, they're great, but it does help that their chief challengers are the flakiest club in world football. And that was late to bear this past weekend. Dortmund, a win, they would have uh, claimed the title, but they drew Mines 2-2 at home. Bayern, 2-1 away win over Cologne. Bayern, the champs, 11 in a row for them. Congratulations, Bayern. I mean, are we we doing this? 11 in a row. They backed into this one. And like you said, they were gifted uh, this one by, by Dortmund, who had it in their hands. And I don't know how you say choke in German, but that's exactly what they did. There is no other word for it. And they are going to be reliving this one for many, many years as to how they ultimately let this one get away. The interesting thing about how all this played out is Bayern scored an early goal, Kingsley Coman. And then in everybody's mind, that part of it was done. Bayern is going to handle their business. And it all became about whether Dortmund was going to win or not. Dortmund go down 1-0. Holler misses a penalty. Then 2-0. And everybody's focus was on that game and wondering if Dortmund was going to pull like a Manchester City Aston Villa from last season. And I was on a text chain with Keith Costigan and Ian Joy. And I was pointing out, 
guys, it's only 1-0 Bayern. A Cologne goal would hand Dortmund the title. And sure enough, in the 81st minute, Cologne scores from the penalty spot. So there were eight minutes there where Dortmund were champs again, even though they were losing to Mainz. And it took an 89th minute Jamal Musiala goal for Bayern to claim the title. That's how close Bayern let it get to. But uh, in the end, they prevail. And as far as Dortmund goes, down 2-0 in the second half. Gio comes on, provided a major spark, assisted Guerrero 2-1. Uh, but then that that comeback kind of fizzled out. And the referee did his best because he gave an inexplicable two additional minutes after the five had already been played. And that gave enough time for Gio to get another assist to Dortmund to make it 2-2. And John Champion didn't even celebrate that goal because he assumed it was going to be the last kick of the game. And as soon as they kicked off again, the game was going to be over. But no, we played another minute after that. There was time for Dortmund to launch a couple of balls in the direction of the Mines box, but nobody could get on the end of it. And that was that. It was fun, though. It was it was <laughs> it was a great watch. It was fun to see the back and back and forth, even though ultimately what happened is something that we've seen now for over a decade in the same thing happening. And it was good that we had this. I think for the Bundesliga, this was good. I I'd said before, I wanted Dortmund to win because I wanted to switch it up. And I think the Bundesliga as a business in totality, it would have been better for the Bundesliga for this uh, to ultimately happen. But Bayern Munich winning again, and then Bayern Munich acting like Bayern Munich is, where they are a super club. And even in the midst of the celebration, they are beautifully ruthless. Even by Bayern standards, <laughs> even, this was cold. This was yeah. awesome, Masu. sacked both Oliver Kahn <laughs> and Hasan Salihamidzic. Uh, literally minutes after winning the title. In Oliver Kahn's case, they didn't even let him go to the game to be able to celebrate. So it's a recognition that they're not fooling themselves. They, they won the Bundesliga, but this was an awful season. The decision to sack Nagelsmann and bring in Tuchel was a disaster, and they were very fortunate to even salvage anything from this campaign. This is how super clubs act. <laughs> this is the behavior, the ruthlessness, the wonderful and beautiful ruthlessness and arrogance in this moment saying no. This is not good enough. Even in the moment where we actually win the league, this has not been up to our standard. And we're not going to mess around. We are getting rid of the people that ultimately were the architect of this. And, you know, in, in this day and age, and we'll talk more about MLS uh, going forward, but Galaxy, this is how a super club acts. Uh, we'll get to the Galaxy in okay. a minute. I know Sean Sullivan's head's going to explode because this is going to be a very long pod, but a couple more points on this Bundesliga title race. Um, a lot of debate about what the best tiebreaker is because different leagues have different tiebreakers. The Premier League, the Bundesliga, Ligue 1, it is goal difference. In La Liga, it's head-to-head. Serie A used to be head-to-head, and then this season they instituted a new rule that if the first and second place teams are level on points, they play a one-game playoff to decide the title. Same thing with 17th and 18th for that last relegation spot. Gab Marcotti was tweeting this weekend that he thinks that's the best way to go, that it's weird to decide a league title and any kind of tiebreaker. He would have liked to have seen Bayern and Dortmund play a one-game playoff. The issue with that, of course, is that you could have a scenario where one team beat the other twice during the season, and then you make them play a playoff, the other team wins, and the team that lost the playoff can say, well, wait a minute, if you value head-to-head so much, we won two of the three meetings over the course of the season. So that feels problematic to me as well. What I take from it is that playoffs make everything better, okay? And that uh, it, it when in doubt, add playoffs, and whatever the situation is will be that much better. All jokes aside, there is a larger, larger conversation as Bayern have won 11 in a row. PSG, which we're going to get to in a second, 
uh, nine league on titles in the last 11 seasons. Either Barcelona or Real Madrid have won 17 of the last 19 La Liga titles. Uh, even the Premier League, which is top European leagues go, fancies itself as the most competitive city, have now won five of the last six. So if you're not going to institute a salary cap, you're not going to un- address the underlying economic factors that lead to this top heaviness. You know, people like you are going to suggest why not introduce playoffs and the purists Another and bite at the apple. bristle at that. Yeah, no. uh, but as we've seen in the NBA playoffs, and in League MX, which we're going to get to, it does allow for the possibility for a team that struggled during the regular season to get hot at the right time, like the Miami Heat or Tigres. Uh, but no, the uh, purists in Europe uh, recoil at that. They think it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. All right. Uh, mercifully, we can move on to England, where everything was decided at the top. So all the drama was at the bottom. And, you know, we viewed this relegation battle through the lens of Leeds because of the Americans. But to be honest, it became pretty clear early on Sunday that Leeds was going to be a non-factor here. They didn't show up. They lose 4-1 to Tottenham. Harry Kane with two goals, by the way, to finish with 30, overshadowed by Erlen Holland. But what a season he had. Lucas Moore with a sensational goal in his final game for Tottenham. Um, So the drama really became uh, between Everton and Leicester. Leicester handled their business, beating West Ham 2-1. But Everton won their game, 1-0 over Bournemouth. DeCorey with a sensational second half strike. And so Everton stay up, Leicester and Leeds go down along with Southampton, which had already uh, clinched uh, relegation. So that's how it all wrapped up. Yeah. And it was wonderful drama for the uh, pro rel enthusiasts out there. Uh, They were, I'm sure, salivating at the the proceedings. And look, I was there with, with everybody. I was watching it. It was fun to go back and forth and to see what was happening and to see the reactions as it was in the Bundesliga, the same EPL, the reactions in the stadium and what was what was going on and how the, the fates were changing with every goal, uh, every goal back and forth. But ultimately, you get Leicester and, you know, Leicester as a story is pretty incredible. And so, you know, I, th- I think it was um, Gary Lineker, who obviously is a huge Leicester fan. Uh, I think at one point he said, if you had if you had told me whatever, you know, seven, eight years ago, we would win the league, but then we would get relegated. He would have bitten your hand off and taken that. But they proved that just winning the league, while that was an anomaly uh, and just a fantasy, beautiful Cinderella type of thing, they also proved that they could stay in the EPL and do more with less. And so while this certainly hurts, it's not completely crazy. The Everton situation is different given their history. Uh, and, you know, our, our friend uh, uh, over, uh, over there, Roger Bennett, uh, who is obviously a huge Everton fan and lives and dies with every moment, while he is relieved, I'm sure at a certain point he's also, as all, all Everton fans are saying, how has it gotten to this point? Why are we even in this moment where we are living and dying with every single kick and every single goal and that we are even on the precipice of being uh, of being relegated? And they'll take this, but this doesn't fix the problems of what Everton, a once strong and glorious type of team right now, finding itself in this uh, precarious situation. Uh, you mentioned pro-rel. We handled the rel part. Let's talk about the pro part, promotion. Uh, the richest game in world football took place at Wembley this past weekend. Uh, Coventry City versus Luton Town in the championship promotion playoff final. Uh, it ended 1-1. Luton Town scored in the first half. Coventry equalized in the second half. Luton Town thought they had scored a late winner in extra time, but VAR correctly ruled it out. They spotted a handball. Thank God for that. Imagine if that game had been decided on a, a blown call like but that. But VAR was only introduced for the uh, the playoff games. 
right? I mean, so it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't during the season, but then they used it in the most important games. And like you said, there's obviously a whole lot on the line, not the least of which is hundreds of millions of uh, of dollars. I'm okay with that. I mean, ultimately, w- would you have wanted promotion um, or lack of promotion for the the opposition to have been dictated by what was an obvious in VAR moment, an obvious uh, uh, obvious foul? I mean, they got the call right, which is ultimately what you want. And there are those that say, well, it's not fair because during the season you didn't use it and now you're using it. First off, why doesn't the championship have VAR? I mean, what, what the hell? All, all I'm told is, oh, the championship is such a high level and there's so much money and it's you know basically one of the great leagues in the, in the world. How the, how the hell can they not have VAR? I mean, this is, this, is, this is insanity. So that they used VAR and that VAR in that moment got the call right and saved what would have been a travesty. That's what VAR is there for. So it finished 1-1, goes to penalties. Lutontown prevails. Uh, Ethan Horvath in goal for Lutontown. Remember, on loan from Nottingham Forest. Uh, there's some talk that he might actually stay there, uh, with, go up with them in the Premier League. So uh, we just I did a whole transfer segment, so we don't have to get into that too much here. But nevertheless, it'd be interesting to track that. Lutontown, they complete the journey that Wrexham are hoping to go on. From the fifth tier to the Premier League, they did it in about 10 years uh, so pretty remarkable for the Hatters. The Hatters. Well done, Hatters. You know, they, they spent money and they spent money wisely. And, you know, you got to put yourself an American in goal and thing and good things happen. So congratulations to Luton Town. Congratulations to Ethan Horvath. I, I hope, you know, that he continues on and they find a way to continue this. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But either way, you know, he lived a piece of history and he lived a moment that he will never forget. And it was fun to watch it. And, you know, Lutontown play in this tiny, tiny stadium, Kenilworth Road. So a lot of people are excited to see Premier League games there next season. Although, in order to meet Premier League specifications, they're going to have to spend a lot of money. We'll see what that ground actually looks like uh, next season. But nevertheless, it's... There uh, are standards and there are minimum standards. And for those screaming and yelling about professional league standards and what they are, they are there for a reason, all right? (laughs) They are there for safety. They are there for uh, a level of comfort and, like I said, safety and, to a certain extent, luxury befitting of the EPL. And you got to do what you had to do. And evidently, that night, they were already starting to work on making it up to code, if you will. All right. Last, last thing in Europe. PSG this past weekend clinched the Ligue 1 title. A 1-1 draw away to Strasbourg. Lionel Messi with the goal. Um, he becomes the all-time leading scorer in Europe's top five leagues. 496 goals surpassed Cristiano Ronaldo. It's also his 43rd trophy, which ties Danny Alves for the all-time record. And given Danny Alves's present circumstances, my money's on Messi uh, surpassing him. If if Ligue 1 is the fifth league of these top fives, what's six? What, what, what do you... Uh, what Portugal. Do you, Portugal? Over what? Over... Uh, at times in the coefficient rankings, Portugal has even nudged the head of Liga. So it's like that's like the battle for fifth. So it's Liga, Bundesliga, EPL, uh, Serie A, and what's the fifth one? Am I missing some? Uh, uh, Spain. Like you say La Liga. Yeah. Say La Liga. All right. So Eredivisie, uh, six, seven, whatever. Seventh, eighth, okay. somewhere in yeah. there. All right. Well, congratulations uh, to Leo. And and Messi is saying he wants to decide his future soon, like within the next week or so. So we could have some big news of that. He doesn't Ooh. want it to be this drawn out saga all summer. And by the way, because PSG is a soulless club, there was no big celebration. All the players scattered. Messi went back to Barcelona, went to a Coldplay concert. Are I you a Coldplay that. fan? I saw that. Eh, I mean, it's okay. Uh, Neymar went to the Monaco Grand Prix, along with a couple of other, uh, Marco Verratti I saw was there too. 
So the, the band will not be getting back together, I don't think. It's going to look very different come September. Mbappe guaranteed he will be back, but he has one more year left on his PSG contract. He had a clause where he could have extended it for another year, and he did not exercise oh, no. that He clause. wants to be a free agent. So he's going to be a free agent next Ooh, summer. Wow. That's, uh, that's a hell of a free agent to have come on the market. All right. I mentioned uh, Marco Verratti switching to MLS, <laughs> but staying with the Italian theme. That's my awkward segue. No, that's there. good. That's a good uh, segue. Toronto, uh, 2-1 winners over DC United. Lorenzo Insigne assisted both Toronto goals. This match occurring against the backdrop of all this drama surrounding Toronto this week. The Athletic did this incredible expose where they talked about how uh, Insigne and Bernadeschi don't get along. Uh, the players having all sorts of issues with Bob Bradley and with Michael Bradley, that he's an uncomfortable presence in the locker room. They view him as more of an assistant coach who's going to take anything they say back to his father. Uh, what did you make of all this Toronto craziness? Oh, so first off, congratulations to Toronto, even in the midst of this crazy drama, to pull off a win against a resurgent type of DC United. Uh, I think that this is only a stay of potential execution when it comes to, uh, to Bob Bradley. Th this is hard to put back in once it's out. The drama and the dynamic uh, that was laid out in the Athletic article, this is nothing new relative to... Um, you know, Bob Bradley and Michael Bradley and that type of dynamic. And look, anybody can understand that that can make things awkward. You know, I mean, the things that I have said about coaches, if I were to be with you here, Mossy, and we're shooting the shit, right? And we're, we're having beers or whatever. And, uh, uh, and I'm talking about your dad. And I'm saying, that son of a bitch, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. I know your dad listens, so he'll, he'll understand this. He's a wonderful man. And I love him. But if I were to you know, MF your dad and talk about he doesn't have any clue what's going on. It would be very awkward to do it in front of you, given the fact that he is your dad. And it would be very awkward for you to, uh, you know, to to have a conversation with me agreeing or disagreeing with that. But but that's part of what the deal has been. And it has been now for multiple decades here when it comes to that dynamic. You know, I was the president of the then Metro Stars when Bob Bradley was the coach and Michael Bradley was a player. Now, the dynamic was very different back then because Michael hadn't become the legend that he is now when it comes to American soccer. But it's still difficult to have the coach's son constantly being in there and being involved in these conversations. And we know the personalities of these two um, they don't suffer fools, and they can be difficult at times. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how you how you rectify this situation other than winning a lot of games. But the dynamics not going to change, and the difficulties and the challenges are nothing new to Bob uh, to Bob Bradley. Now, Bob Bradley is is a legend. This is a problem that he is going to have to solve, and this is a good step forward in terms of getting a win. But if you don't then come back and get multiple wins, it's just going to fester and continue on. And there's nothing really you can do or say. You can have the come to Jesus moment and bring everybody together and vent all your frustrations out there. But that doesn't change the fact that you have a player in your locker room who is the son of the coach. And it's, it's not, I guess it's not fair to Michael Bradley, but it's the reality of the situation uh, that, uh, that they have created in Toronto. And they're going to have to deal with it. And usually it doesn't end well for the coach. By the way, Tom Berger, Bogert involved in that uh, Toronto yep. expose. Also, he's the one that broke the uh, Brendan Aronson relegation clause story. He is crushing it at the Athletic. He's doing what a, a good picture, job. Huh? He's doing a good job. Um, Nashville, 3-1 uh, 
win over Columbus. Hani Mukhtar with a goal and an assist. No player has ever won back-to-back MLS MVPs. The only player to win two MLS MVPs is Preki, but that is very much in play here because Mukhtar has picked up right where he left off last season. Nine goals, seven assists. What a player. Well, I mean, just incredible. And look, he, he got his, um, his goal at the end of the game and things had opened up. But there was a time where I was watching this game and he would get the ball. And we've said, you got to shut down Mukhtar. Well, easier said than done. But there was a moment where he got the ball. And I swear to God, there was like seven players around him. You know, there's that famous picture of Messi with 11, 10 guys surrounding him. It was kind of like that. And yet he still is able to get out and to do things and to, you know, hit great passes, obviously to finish himself and to just do some some incredible things. So he is flying right now. But again, Knock on wood from a Nashville perspective that you bubble wrap him and make sure he doesn't get uh, doesn't get hurt. And so Nashville coming out, wonderful environment there in Nashville, as we've said time and time again with that stadium uh, and what they've created, beating a very good Columbus team. Uh, SKC 4-1 win over Portland. Tommy and Shallowy among the scores. SKC 3-1-1 in their last five MLS games. After a rough start, they're yep. heading in the right direction. And Peter Vermes, you know, pulling himself out of the fire. Uh, I mean, still under pressure. And, you know, we talked about his long leash, but, you know, they had they had plenty of injuries. So you start to get some players back. You start to have your main players doing what they are designed to do. And you come up against a Portland team that's not great. Take that, put that in the bank and you start to rehabilitate your image in this moment when people when a lot of people, you know, I think rightfully and fairly so we're saying, hey, maybe it's come to an end and maybe it's gotten stale for uh, for Peter Vermes. But you're only as good as your last game. And his last game was a win. Uh, bonus one, the Galaxy suffer a 1-0 defeat to Charlotte. Chicharito sent off after the game. We saw this recently with AC Milan, and now we see it with the Galaxy. The players went over to the fans and got a bit of a tongue lashing. I know you find all this all per- performative BS, as you like to say. Oh, wait, which was it? What was it? What, what, which one are you talking about? LA Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so if you didn't see it, um, Greg, uh, Greg Vanny and company go over to the fans, uh, the fans that have decided to actually come to the stadium because there's a whole section of them and they're not in the stadium. And they have this this interaction. And like I said, I've said before, I think it's performative. I, I don't think it accomplishes anything. Um, I think it's, I, I don't think it's credible and I don't think it's real or, or, or genuine. And ultimately, only thing, like we said with Toronto, the only thing that solves this or for Sporting KC for that for that uh, matter is by winning. But just when you think the galaxy can't get any lower, they find a way to <laughs> a, a whole new depth. And keep in mind that you know Chris Klein, who obviously is under a tremendous amount of pressure and the airplanes flying over, calling for uh, his firing and all that, you know, has hitched himself to this team in that he's said that he will step down if they don't live up to the standard. Well, they're certainly not living up even close to the standard of what's going now. And if they continue on like this, then the end of the season, we'll see the end of uh, of Chris Klein. I don't know how smart it was for him to do that, but uh, but there it is. And it, it's now you can just see it when you're watching the Galaxy. You can say, oh, here it comes. Nothing's happening on, on one end. And, you know, while Chicharito does a lot in terms of motion and action the the product the end product is not there and now he's getting frustrated and he's kicking people and doing all these uh, these different things but you know 
Greg Vanny, again, I've said this before, uh, deserves as much blame uh, and has to take as much responsibility as anybody for what is happening with this, uh, with this LA Galaxy team right now. And it's ugly. And it just keeps getting uglier, even when you didn't think it could get any uglier. Next up, Mexico. We had an epic end to the League MX campaign. Uh, Chivas, Tigres, final the first leg. Had ended nil-nil at the Estadio Universitario, so the scene shifted to Guadalajara on Sunday. Chivas was up 2-0 at home, mid-second half, cruising. Looked like they were headed for the title, but then Gignac from the penalty spot, 2-1. Cordova, who's been outstanding in this Liguilla, he made it 2-2. We went to extra time, and then in the extra time, Guido Pizarro set piece. Ball was pinging around the box, and then a deflected header looped in. 3-2 Tigres. That was the final. They claim the Clausuda title heartbreak for Chivas. Congratulations, though. Congratulations uh, to, uh, to uh, Tigres. And, uh, and we should mention also that we have some, some CONCACAF champions. I'm going to segue okay, to that. Yeah. Tigres eliminated by fellow Mexican side Leon in the semifinals of CCL. So it will be Leon against LAFC in the final. Uh, we're taping this on a Tuesday. First leg tomorrow in Mexico. Live on FS1, a half-hour pregame. Rob Stone and Alexi Lalas, you're back in the game, my friend. Back in, baby. I've been kind of phased out of CCL the last few weeks. Yeah, you know, know, I'll probably shave, shower a little (laughs) bit, you know, make myself presentable for TV, get back uh, in the the saddle. I can't wait. uh, It's going to be fun. Obviously, obviously LAFC trying to replicate what Seattle did last year in terms of being uh, CONCACAF champions and then going to uh, the uh, FIFA Club World Cup. So, you know, that's uh, that's a fun thing. And they're they're flying right now. But it's a it's a two legged type of situation. And uh, I think that the the ambition and the confidence of MLS teams now going down to Mexico has fundamentally changed over the last couple of years. And quick turnaround between the two legs. Yep. The second leg is Sunday uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, I fully expect LAFC to win this. I think they're the better team to begin with. And then you throw in the fact that Leon haven't played in 24 days because they got knocked out in the Repechaje. And away goals do not count. Away goals do not count. And uh, unlike the previous rounds, if it's tied after two legs, we go to extra time. Uh, yes. It's straight to penalties in the in the earlier rounds. But yeah, uh, I think LAFC is the better team. They're going to prevail. And it's going to be two in a row for MLS, which will signal, in my view, a changing of the guard. Ah. I'm excited. I can't, I'm excited. I can't wait. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how LAFC and Steve Trelundolo. We talked to him uh, yesterday, and you know he he sees the opportunity for this club. And you know Steve Trelundolo, I think very quickly is becoming, you know, one of the great coaches in Major League Soccer. And talk about um, improving your CV in a very short period of time. Uh, not just winning a uh, MLS Cup, but now if he comes back and uh, goes and wins CONCACAF Champions League. Hmm, interesting. As a matter of fact, in the pregame, we're going to have a U.S. national team head coaching chat and should Trunilo be mentioned more often? And would you be willing to wait till the end of this MLS season and then hire him? So that's Ooh, sort of an interesting, interesting question. Interesting. Good tease, Mossy. Good yep. tease. Good tease. All right, anything else? That is it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. All right, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the uh, show where you send in your comments, questions, and your concerns, either there on the uh, social media platforms. You can use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi, or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. I know we're running a little bit long today. Uh, Producer Sean is freaking out over there, but you know what? We're giving you a little extra, 
little extra today because there was so much going on. And as we said, we came on air uh, with the uh, the breaking news of the the coaching change to the U.S. men's national team. Um, what do we have this week, Mossy? So one Twitter question, Giants Comeback Trail asks, where do you think the final will be? I'm guessing it's between L.A., Dallas, and New York City. He's referring, obviously, to the 2026 Men's World Cup. Yeah, I had a bunch of questions on Twitter about what the World Cup is going to look like. Now, keep in mind, nothing has been ultimately decided as to other other than the actual venues um, and the 16 different uh, stadia. Nothing has been decided as to who's playing, obviously, where uh, and when. And they've talked about regionalizing the World Cup and going forward and all this kind of stuff. Now, I'll take you back to 2000. Well, I guess it would be 2016 when the initial bid was made to joint host the World Cup with the United States, Mexico, and Canada. And then ultimately it was decided in 2018 that yes, it was awarded to uh, the United States, Mexico, and Canada. It goes without saying that the United States could do this all alone. We have the infrastructure, we have the capabilities, we have the history. The United States does not, in terms of the, the practical putting on of a World Cup, need Mexico and Canada in order to do it. But there is baggage that comes with the United States. <laughs> I shouldn't have to tell you this, but it, it's just a fact of life. And strategically, it made sense, and politically, it made sense to include Mexico and Canada with the bid. And there are those members out there that vote for FIFA that do not have a favorable impression um, or idea or belief when it comes to America and America hosting a World Cup. And so this gave them the opportunity to, at the very least, hold their nose and vote for the U.S. in the more international aspect of it. And they could you know, hang their hat on the fact that Mexico was going to be part of it or Canada was going to be part of it. And so in that sense, we used Canada and Mexico to assuage fears and to, like I said, give people that might not just, just vote for the U.S. if it was just the U.S., Having said that, 80% of the World Cup is going to be held in the United States. The opening game, uh, I think, is going to and should absolutely be held in the United States. What I think ultimately is going to happen, though, is that there'll probably be three opening games in, in the three countries. Again, I don't have any inside information. I'm just spitballing here. I think the opening games are going to be held probably in all three countries to kind of kick it all off. Uh, I think the draw is going to be held in the United States, uh, as it should. And... When it really comes to this question about where do you think the final is going to be, uh, I think that uh, Jerry's going to get his way down there in Dallas. I think ultimately the final is going to be held in Dallas. Keep in mind that if that were to happen, it would be the first time that a final of a World Cup, a men's World Cup, is held indoors. We've had an indoor final when it comes to Vancouver in, uh, in Canada for the Women's World Cup. We've had an indoor World Cup game and games played way back in 1994 in the Pontiac Silverdome. But I would love to see the final of the 2026 Men's World Cup be held down there at Jerry World in Dallas, indoors, even though it's all going to be grass, indoors, where you don't have to worry about weather. Uh, time zone, it's better. So keep in mind that in 1994 and in 1999, the final was held in Los Angeles. I don't think that's going to happen. I think FIFA is concerned with you know, getting the most bang for their buck and obviously time zone and making sure that it is in the best and the most advantageous time zone for particular Europe. 
uh, going forward. And I think there is a novel type of concept of having a World Cup final be played indoors. I do think that the future of sports and the future of soccer in the United States and maybe around the world is indoor types of venues where you don't have to worry about, obviously, climate. It opens you up to being play, being able to play and do things year-round. Um, and it gives this generation an opportunity to satisfy the luxury that they have become accustomed to. And there will be old folks, grumpy folks that scream and yell and talk about how, no, soccer should be played outdoors and in the elements and in uh, adverse climates and all that kind of stuff. No, people like to be comfortable. All right. Even the romantic notion that Europeans, I know Europeans, <laughs> I've met Europeans, uh, they like to be comfortable, too. And the future of the game is providing that luxury, is taking out of the equation the the problems that come uh, that come with weather and having a pristine, ideal type of environment on a consistent basis indoors. And so I think that that ultimately is going to what was going to happen in the final. Uh, no love for New York City. It's it's outdoor, okay. So you're worried about uh, the weather. Yeah, I mean, I think New York is going to play a big part in the World Cup, but I just think they're going to do something different. Now, keep in mind that there are four different indoor venues: uh, Dallas, uh, Atlanta, Houston, and uh, and Vancouver as uh, as uh, venues for the uh, World Cup in 2026. But yeah, I think it's ultimately going to be in Dallas. Uh, keep in mind, our director Erin Schechter was just in New York. She said it was abnormally cold for this time of year. See, had she been playing in Dallas, uh, it would have been climate controlled and she would have had no problem and she would have been incredibly comfortable at whatever stadium that she went to. And uh, thank to, God she's back because her replacement gay was a disaster. Disaster. So we are disaster. back on track at All this right. podcast. Like I said, we're going long. So we're just going to take one Twitter question uh, today. We got some other ones that came in. And we do appreciate you when you uh, send in your questions, whether it's on Twitter uh, or Instagram or Facebook or any place out there on the uh, social media platforms, do use that hashtag Ask Alexi. And if you do call in, uh, please use our State of the Union podcast hotline 657-549-2297. I'm sure uh, producer Sean had a fun time going through some of our messages this week because anytime that I tweet about politics, <laughs> people take me up on my offer uh, of calling in on our uh, on our podcast hotline and uh, yell and scream and call me horrible, nasty names, but that's what it's there for. So if you'd like to do that, you know, have at it. No problem. Uh, let's take another quick break. When we come back, I will give you my one. Two, three, okay. Welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Mossy, um, the phenomenon on st of statues and honoring and paying tribute to, uh, people through statues has, uh, reared its head yet, yet again. We recall the, uh, uh, the Cristiano Ronaldo brouhaha, given his statue. Uh, David Beckham has a statue. It shouldn't be so hard, Mossy, to do an acceptable and, and presentable type of statue. But never put it past uh, artists out there to do things that are going to <laughs> make us scratch our heads. Um, if you're watching, you will see what we have up here. Uh, the newest statue of Marcelo Gallardo. Uh, <laughs> you want to tell the folks a little bit about uh, uh, this uh, th this guy and what is happening here? Yeah, Marcelo, it's Gallardo, by the way. Oh, sorry. I always forget this, but in Argentina, the two L's are pronounced like a J. Sorry, excuse me. Gallardo. Uh, played at River Plate and more recently, legendary coach at River Plate. Great success. Uh, won multiple Libertadores titles there. Uh, just left the club. 
Uh, but they've uh, built a statue of him. But he's a legend. He's a legend yeah. and statuesque and statue worthy. And <laughs> and if you can see the picture, not since Michelangelo's David have I seen genitalia that big on a statue. <laughs> so what they what they decided uh, could it could be a single person or the artists involved decided was appropriate was to make his package his bulge. Just the focus of attention. Let's be honest. Your eyes are drawn immediately to it, and it's and it. What it does is ultimately ruin the presentation. And I don't understand why this consistently happens. You know, in this day and age, we talk about statues a lot, and we talk about you know what they mean, what they don't mean. Should they be there? Shouldn't they be there? Who's worthy? Who's not? But when we look back at statues, there was always a a, a general recognition that. Yeah, it's a it's a cool statue. You know, I mean, I don't understand why it's so hard in today's age to do a normal, cool tribute statue to somebody. Why does it always have to have something wrong? Why can modern day artists not do normal statues and depictions of human beings that look like them? And then not only because because, by the way, the bulge is one thing. The whole other thing it's it's out of proportion. It's ugly. It looks like it has purposely been done poorly. And I know that there are those you know those gags and those punked types of moments. David Beckham famously with James uh, Corgan, Corgan, whatever his name is, um, he he you know he uh, he pranked him once about a about a statue. But the reason why it it resonates is because the output of horrible statues. I don't understand it. We should have a whole generation whose sole responsibility is to be able to do adequate and normal statues going forward for the people that we deem appropriate. Not this ridiculous crap that continually comes up. And maybe maybe I'm the dumb one. Maybe it's being done on purpose to get me to scream and yell and to gesticulate and to bring attention to something that otherwise would maybe go unnoticed. But now you have to make it so ridiculous and so bad and and make the package so big that people on the other side of the earth and people that wouldn't normally talk about it are actually drawn to it and are talking about it. So Fair play. Well done. You did exactly. If that was your intention, it worked to a T. But if it wasn't your intention, and I don't think it was, that is a bad, bad statue. I'm not an artist when it comes to sculpture and statues, but that is a bad statue. And we don't need any more bad statues. We need artists that can make good statues going forward. All right. Uh, as long as we're way over the time limit, can I geek out one more time on can, this podcast? Of course you can, At this point, people have turned off anyway. <laughs> Again, we're taping this on Tuesday. Tomorrow in Budapest, Roma-Sevilla, Europa League final. Something has to give. Sevilla have never lost a Europa League final. Jose Mourinho has never lost a European final. The interesting thing here is, as you know, because you witnessed this firsthand, in the 80s and 90s, Serie A was the best league in the world, had the best players, dominated European competitions. The apex of all that was the 89-90 campaign when Italian clubs won all three major European competitions. AC Milan won the European Cup, beat Benfica in the final, that great Arigo Saki team with Gullit, Van Basten, and Rijkaard. And then Juventus beat Fiorentina in an all-Italian UEFA Cup final. Roberto Baggio played that final for Fiorentina. Then that summer moved to Juventus, one of the most controversial transfers of all time. It led to riots in Florence. And then Sampdoria, who featured a strike pairing of Roberto Mancini and the late Gianluca Vialli, beat Anderlecht in the Cup Winners' Cup final. Fast forward all these years later, Serie A has the chance for another treble of sorts. Tomorrow will be Roma Sevilla in the Europa League. And the following Wednesday, uh, Fiorentina against West Ham in the Conference League final in Prague. 
And then the big one, City Inter in Istanbul in the Champions League final. Well, a lot has to go right <laughs> for it to be repeated. But but it is, it does say something about what Serie A is. So I'm glad you, you finished that because I think there is a, a bigger conversation to be had about is Serie A back or is this just, you know, one of those one of those anomalies? And they've been trying to get back and they've gone through <laughs> on and off the field. I mean, they killed the golden goose, let's be honest, uh, from what it once was. All right. Um, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Listen, we have gone long. We appreciate those, uh, all three of you that stuck around for the entire, entire show. But we thought it was appropriate. We thought it was right, especially with the... Uh, the ending of uh, of leagues and the opportunities and the possibilities when it comes to Americans that we're going to be talking about all summer as we go through uh, the international um, uh, dates and games that we are going to have and all the doings. And like we said, Anthony Hudson out and BJ Callahan in. So good luck to BJ. Thank you to Anthony. And onward and upward when it comes to uh, all things American soccer, which we like to discuss. We love the, the fact that you review, that you rate, uh, that you um, send in all of your questions, whether it's on the State of the Union podcast hotline, it's, which is 657-549-2297, or when you use that hashtag, Ask Alexi out there. We will be back again later on in the week. Uh, we do have an interview with the great uh, Julie Ertz, who is back, baby. Uh, we have that coming up, so uh, certainly watch for that. But until then, and as always, my friends, size the day. <laughs>